0: Music. Horror. Art. Politics. Badassery. Welcome to society. Hello. This is Victoria from the night Story Podcast. And this is Kettle Whistle Radio. They play music almost as good as my music box. It's also fairly dark in here. You're not afraid of the dark, but you should be. <laughs>
1: you want to see something really scary? You bet. Music. Horror
0: armed politics and overall badass abuse. Welcome to Kettle Whistle Radio for Real on Society 13 Networks.
2: Tuning in to Kettle Whistle Radio. Very special guest here, uh, going back some years from me. Um, we just heard one of his songs, uh, it, that was Pay Me, Pray Me, which to me is just, uh, it's just a brilliant song. Just a great thing to start off with, like sort of how James Addiction would end an album or start off with. I don't know if you're a James, fan, but I have Hugh Bernard with me right now from the band Nature. If you, anybody from back in uh, the late 90s can remember that band. Phenomenal band and one great CD. Hugh, are you there? I'm here. Thank you so much for doing this, man. I'm a huge fan. Hey, thanks. (laughs) So excited (laughs) to hear that. All right. Well, you know, Skype is a weird thing. I'm just glad we could connect. And, uh, I just got to say thanks for doing this. And, um, all right. Well, let's, I got to talk nature real quick. Uh, funk, metal, jazzy, industrial. You guys would have called it all. And this was like what 95?
1: Yeah, mid 90s. That was the problem, by the way, was all those things you just listed. Yes. Marketing the band was, was, was highly confusing.
2: <laughs> I'll bet, but I mean, coming off the heels of like the bands in the late '80s, I, I don't know. I think you guys got a raw deal because you had it all, as far as I'm concerned. Um, oh yeah, it was
1: it was confusing and strange.
2: <laughs> strange time for music. Uh, just it got w- worse from then on. Um, you know,
1: one thing they were always talking about was, oh yeah, it's like sort of metal. You know, like, we should market you guys as a metal band, especially because they wanted to push the song Cometh, right. but that song had so many uh, keyboards in it,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, metal guys aren't really into the excessive keyboard thing, and also, you know, in retrospect, the mid-90s,
2: actually all the 90s were kind of the dark days of metal, weren't they? Yeah, they were, they were. Uh, grunge had killed it, supposedly. I, I loved Grunge. I always, th- I looked at you guys, though, because I'm a Faith No More fan and Mr. Bungle fan, so I was looking for oh, that. Yeah. I was really looking for that. Were you guys uh, fans?
1: Oh, yeah. No, uh, I, I remember driving around Hollywood listening to the first couple of Mr. Bungle albums when we were going to, you know, S&M clubs and whatnot. Yeah. It's sort of a good soundtrack for early to mid-90s Hollywood.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, Bungle. I mean, I and they're still, well, they were still going for a little while there. But I, when you guys, like, all right, you put out Cometh. There is a video for it. Um, people should know that if they didn't know that. Uh I was just, I was so surprised and happy to see that video still on YouTube, which is great. Um, what happened with that? Just like the video came out and there wasn't going to be a second release? Was there a second release planned? Oh, you mean, you mean of a single or yeah, an well, album? Yeah, a single. Cause I'll, let me tell you how I found you guys. I found you guys on a sampler disc in, uh, early 95, I guess, uh, yeah. with, called the Bogmen. There was a group called the Bogmen that had a sam- sampler. Yeah, and, yeah, and, I remember that. Do you remember that? that? I heard, yeah, I heard you guys on there. I immediately bought the album after that. Well, yeah, we were we actually
1: the first single that we wanted to put out was for Z Man's Party, and they wanted to put out Cometh, and then they were going to put out Z Man's Party, but then the record label sort of fell apart after that. So.
2: That's, that's a common story.
1: Yeah, that was sort of the period where the music industry went through its, its initial wave of collapse, and we were sort of uh, caught up in that. And again, with the confusion, the confusion about how to market the band, mm-hmm. they just really didn't know what to do with it. I remember when we first got signed. Uh, they had a lot more employees, and basically, the, the first thing that happened after we got signed is they like fired all of their A and R people except one guy. Oh you know, so so <laughs> immediately upon signing the contract, the, the, the ranks of their employees were, were was decimated
2: that's that's god that happens so much in the late 90s a lot of good bands in early 2000 too i don't know if you're familiar with a band called the final cut um anthony schrock he's been on here a few times he has now full effect records and signed faster pussycat on his label he he, Uh he's making a comeback um from that from losing the label and all that fun stuff that went down where all these good bands just kind of like disappeared and that's why i had to dig up you guys which was not easy do you Mm -hmm. guys i know you talked to at least one of the guys Do you jam with them anymore for the guys from nature
1: well you know let's see no i haven't talked to any of those guys in a long time oh, Okay. You know, brian i had you know i was friends with real time. i actually met brian we met when we were uh, twelve years old and went to high school together and played in bands together and uh... we were gonna continue to we actually had some projects after nature but mm-hmm. you know that nature thing was sort of a devastating experience uh, and then he went to film school which we were we were gonna work together in that industry, but you know that nature experience sort of spoiled everything. But I don't know if you know, like the crank films, the uh, Jason Statham and gamer. Yeah, and, uh, sure,
2: sure. Yeah, that's 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 Brian. He made those. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. Yeah. Well, there Weird, you go. Right. There is life after that. I was just happy to find you, and it was you know, nice enough to connect with me. And I, I got to tell you, the baselines for you, for nature just stick out. I know we're going. Of course, we're going to talk about what you got going on here. And I apologize for not keeping up with you because you have a lot going on. Uh, you uh, know,
1: it's no problem, man. You know, it, it took me a long time to get back to music. You know, uh, there were definitely a few years there where I didn't do much of anything, uh, and then I discovered I still had the passion for it. And I was probably the only guy in the band. You know, I think that that Andrew got married and moved and doesn't play music anymore. I think I heard from Brandon that he was playing drums in a blues band somewhere in L.A., but we weren't able to hook up. I'd, I'd love to play with him again because we were a really good rhythm section, but uh, you know, it, it ended up being a, a destructive experience uh, in a way that I think everyone regrets. Mm. And it, 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 took some, it took some time to recover from that. I mean, when we first came, came on the scene and started playing, it was extremely exciting. And yeah. the live performance was really an incredible thing. I'd say for about six months, we felt like we were the greatest band in the world. <laughs> and, uh, you know, incredible ambition, uh, incredible energy. energy. And then mm-hmm. we, then what happened is, is what happened, you know, which is not that uncommon of an experience, but it's still kind of devastating
2: the things I read about your live performance, people would just walk in there, not know what the hell was going on, but somehow they were just like excited by it. That's what what I like to hear. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. You know, it it got to the point where we could just sort of show up and, and basically destroy the environment. I mean, we would, we would manifest huge amounts of energy just, just kind of on call, uh, and, uh, you know, leave it a leave it a smoking room. And it was really good for a while. There was, it was an incredible experience. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's just too bad that, that it ended up the way that it did.
2: Yeah, there was just so much creative creativity in that, that album alone. I mean, it's just so much, and so much fun. It, it, yeah, it's hard to, when you say that, it, I feel like, wow, why did I dig this up and bring you down? Um, no, it's but, fine, man. <laughs> yeah. You know, by the way, I, I,
1: there's, some, there's, some, there's some tracks on that album that did not make the album that I have. One of I, my questions. I yeah, I, there's a couple of tracks that were cut that were finished, Uh, and I still don't know what to do with them. I keep thinking there's going to be a re-release of the album and we can do some Hmm. sort of, like, you know, revisioning of what it was initially supposed to be. So I haven't put them out yet because I don't really know
0: Hmm.
1: how to go about it. Bandcamp,
2: maybe? Um, Well, I mean, there's all all those options.
1: Yeah. Um, I just don't know the best way to do it.
0: Hmm. But
1: uh, you would probably really enjoy at least one of these songs. Oh, I'm sure I will. I hope to hear them one day. Uh, Geez. We were actually... The point was that we were going to save it for the second album, right. which never actually
2: happened. That's, I, I mean, I, I knew you guys had to have something else going on there, because not everything makes the cut on the first album. You always have stuff that you have to leave out, or better yet, yeah. a follow-up that you just can't wait to do. Um, yeah. Just as far as nostalgia, we'll just, you know, we'll... we'll you know, in the nature segment here before we get into what's really going on with you right now, with, uh, just a nostalgia of the music. Z-Man's Party, you got Russ Myers, uh, Beyond the Value yeah, of the right. Dolls going on there. Right, based, right. based on Z-Man, of course. Right. Cometh, you had samples from the Evil Dead 2. Um right. You Only Live Twice, you got James Bond Remake-ish going on there. And of course, uh, the song I really want to play, I've been dying to play, is Justine.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> That's just yeah, hilarious.
1: Sample, sample clearance was a bitch.
2: I'll bet. <laughs> how did you get Sam Raimi? I mean, you...
1: <laughs> he was totally cool. He was fine. Uh, who else was fine? Uh, we had to get Roger Ebert's approval to use the samples from Beyond the Valley at Dolls because he wrote the screenplay.
0: Wow. And uh, yeah. we
1: sent him a, a faxed contract and he just wrote the word okay on it in giant <laughs> letters and sent it back. <laughs> I think Sam Raimi wanted like a dollar.
2: Uh, I believe it. I believe so. It.
1: So it was all good. Then other people were, were more difficult. We had to take some stuff out, like we had some Clint Eastwood samples on there that we had to remove because there was just no way that was going to happen. Um, that was on the song uh, "Do a Crime." Yes. And we sent the we sent the track to Clint Eastwood's people, and they were like, "Yeah, we're not even going to play it for."
2: Them. <laughs> 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 oh man, but still, it's a great story. Um, but and then Justine just sticks out because it's just you know, all about Mallory from Family Ties, and it's just so, yeah. so tongue in cheek. I love it. Um, I don't know, like, who came up with it, and who was the first one to play the riff? Like, is this yours, or...? That was actually, that one and Comet, those were both uh, tracks that, that Brian brought right. in.
1: I think Justine, he, he pretty much did, did in its entirety. All the other stuff we, we created sort of jamming together. We had, you know, we, we jammed together for about a year before we ever played or got signed, and uh, we would show up in this little concrete room <laughs> in the Arts District of uh, downtown L.A., uh, like off to the side of this much larger loft, um, this concrete room with no windows, and jamming in there for hours and hours. Brian would bring some samples he had um, on a keyboard, and the rest of us, we would just play for hours making cassette tapes on the open air. Oh, man. Amazing, amazing stuff. I mean, that was the initial rush of uh, creativity right there. It's fantastic. An, an incredible period. And then he would take that stuff home and, uh, you know, uh, arrange it and write lyrics for it. So a lot of the stuff came about that way. But there were a couple songs where Brian came in with, you know, I remember the day still when he came in with the uh, with the sequence for Cometh, all the keyboard and uh, electronic drum parts, all the samples. And you know, he just came in with it one day. That was We had, we had moved to a different building uh, down the street. And, uh, you know, he's like, hey, check this out. I woke up in the middle of the night and just did this and played <laughs> the sequence to Cometh. And I was just, you know completely floored it's like we can, can we play this you know <laughs>
2: <laughs> that's badass i, I mean it, it sounds really between your bass and the rhythm section it's like bouncing a basketball a 100 miles per hour just ripping the floor apart i always love that sound and it, just like the segments where the guitar stops and you just hear that riveting beat and bass going it's like wow this yeah. is this is fun stuff man well see, that
1: was, that was the thing about it was that it, it had that that heavily electronic element, but then there was real playing going on in combination with it. And most of the electronic music you hear that's in combination with real musicians, the musician the musicianship isn't as strong. But we were coming on really strong. So those two things in combination, <laughs> that's what created the impact, I think.
2: Well on that note, um I would like to play Justine. Are you are you good with that? Sure. Yeah? Oh yeah. <laughs> all right, well all right, we're just gonna take a break. We'll be right back with Hugh Bernard. Thank you, folks, for listening.
0: What next? Rome, Carthage, Babylon,
1: Southern, and Gomorrah. When some could finally get their libidinal satisfaction.
0: Only through the six acts of the Marquis de Sade. change teachers are with us. They are seducing the young of America, changing their moral standards, causing them to revert to a primitive atavistic standard of pleasure for pleasure, with no discipline and no morality and none of the character molding precepts that made this country the greatest power in all the world.
2: folks we are back folks friends and fiends i'm here with you bonar from the band nature and now hb3 uh we, you just heard justine it's just a favorite of mine because just, it just makes me smile and I, I really love getting to play that um i have to ask you Hugh, you you guys were there before the end of the century <laughs> and yeah. the, the music world changed and it's funny yeah. like you guys saw it about to change uh-huh. Um, to me, the worst was Napster because it killed a lot of bands off. But where do you stand with the whole Napster thing?
1: Well, you know, I guess I liked it when I had no money, but then when I was able to afford to actually buy a CD again, I right. I sort of I, I sort of turned the other way. Mm. And I mean, you know, I'm on Spotify, and everything that they say about Spotify is true. I get plays on one of my albums uh, consistently. The album called uh, The Veld. That's actually the album with me framing on it. I get hundreds, if not thousands of plays a month. Nice. And then I, but yeah, but <laughs> mm. then I get, you know, like 20 cents. I get like micro payments in like, you know, the, the hundredth of a fraction of a
2: cent. Yeah, I was afraid, I, I, I knew that about Spotify. That's why I didn't say that first. I said Bandcamp, because I think Bandcamp is better for the bands from what I've yeah, heard.
1: it Yeah, it, it's crazy. So, you know, it, it's hard to make money. I'm glad I have a job, you know, I'm lucky. Who was that guy in, you know, did you see, uh, the guy in Creed who's living out of garbage cans or
2: whatever? Unbelievable. I mean, but I mean, and here it is in my hands. This is the actual CD of Nature. I actually own the CD. Where do you feel with all this digital stuff going on? Like, where do you feel like, do you miss the CD, the album, or are you okay with the MP3? No, I, I, I
1: do. I've been getting into, uh, HD tracks and, and, you know, spending way too much money on high resolution downloads and I can tell the difference and I, I try and record now in, in, as high resolution as I can and yeah it makes a difference I think the high resolution downloads are sort of getting closer to the uh, you know whatever term you want to use to describe the vinyl experience uh, or even you know if you want to talk about the loudness wars. I think we just barely missed that uh, in the mid 90s but by the time you know five years later uh, with the first onrush of mastering plugins, they sort of go crazy with this stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. and
1: uh, you know again the the fidelity of what you're hearing uh, uh, takes a hit. But yeah, I, I still like uh, physical media, but it, it's pretty much gone at this point. you know i I, I will probably put some stuff out on vinyl in the future though I, i'm not exactly sure why
2: uh. <laughs> <laughs> it's been it's kind of collectible people are going back to find the few vinyls on the shelves yeah. these days
1: you know I, I did i did an ep with this french singer uh, earlier in the year and we were talking <laughs> about putting it out on cassette you know uh, we never did but uh, you know that that stuff has a certain appeal for sure
0: Absolutely. there was
1: just a lot of care i think in the way that people you know, made their mixtapes and uh, mm. all that stuff. All the the all the culture associated with music consumption has, has changed, I, I think, for the worse. Mm. You know, you would have a friend in high school who would make you a mixtape and he'd, like, do little artwork for you. You yes. know, he'd, like, draw on the CD label, on the cassette label or on the, you know, spine of the case or something like that. Mm-hmm. I, I don't get the same, like, tender, loving care uh, where people are sort of passing the music on from, from exactly. one to the next and even if it was you know that was free too but at least there was there was some uh, original artwork coming along with it at the same time i don't know
2: yeah no it was all original I, I i missed that completely i really did yeah missing or just you know like uh just the immediacy of it the fact that you can download a song the second you hear it's out it takes away from chasing that song down and valuing it when you actually have it in your hands like, yeah. it's just too easy you know it's too easy to become a critic too and there's a lot of critics out there that I think just aren't worthy I saw some footage
1: recently of Power Records on Sunset from around 1970 where they just got a shipment of, of albums in and oh, just you know you really got a sense that this was a thriving culture back then that people could really become obsessed with and dedicate their lives to. Yep. And uh, you, you just don't get the same sense anymore. There was That's a big room. And I mean, it was like thousands and thousands of LPs and people that are lining up to buy them. You know, oh, like shot sure. the people at the cashier with big stacks of records. And uh, they were going to take those home and, and cherish them.
2: Absolutely. And not to mention the people you meet there, you know, that you're all digging for the same records or whatever. You don't get the same experience on the web, really. I, I don't. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. yeah. So how about the club scene? I know it's – I ask a lot of artists, how much has it changed as far as people showing up for the, the actual oh, show? Oh, my God. Yeah,
1: <laughs> Yeah. There's, there's no real solution, man. It's hard, it's hard getting stuff out there. Uh, in Los Angeles uh, – i don't get the sense of people really going out to discover new music randomly it's kind of the same thing yeah. that uh in the past people would go out not knowing exactly what they were going to hear but but you know they they would take that chance and and frequently the the, the taking the chance was was rewarded and and they would come up on something interesting but but now it, it's kind of the opposite people don't want to take the chance because they've been burned so often by mm-hmm. poor performances, uh, yeah. and that's yeah, it, it's really unfortunate. I, I gig, but but not so much. You know, it, it's not a regular, all the time thing like I would like it to be. Uh, so I think a lot of performers, musicians, artists don't really know what to do. We're in this strange moment. Yeah. Where it, it's hard to get people to listen to stuff. It's hard for people to get interested, and you can't really blame them. Uh, you know, the democratization of music production has opened it up completely. It's sort of like publishing, too. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. as a writer, you know, yeah. uh, everybody can put stuff out there that mm-hmm. has advantages and disadvantages. The advantages that, you know, if you're good, you, you don't have to worry about it, mm-hmm. uh, and you can just release your work and, and not feel like you're at the mercy of a Publisher or a A uh, and R person who may or may not understand, but on the other hand, there's 10 million other people doing that too who aren't taking nearly as much care as you are in the production of your work. So because of that, people just sort of tend to shut it all off.
2: You are so right. correct. Oh yes. Oh boy, are you correct? Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. So how, how are we going to break through to how are we going to change all this? I don't know. We're in this strange transitional period,
0: right?
2: Yeah. Really bad time to be an artist or a writer or anything at this point. I, I, I see on Netflix, like there's always these indie movies and, you know, one out of every ten are actually pretty good, but they, yeah. you know, they fill them up. I, don't, I, don't, I know a lot of guys that make these movies and I don't know, not too many of them are making money doing it, at least right. a profit on it. They're making more money to do, do the next film, but. Yeah. I was yeah. just
1: talking with a friend about this. They used to have tentpole films in, you know, big studios where they'd have a blockbuster that would sort of fund the you know not necessarily as commercially viable but artistically interesting, you know, indie style films and they don't really do that anymore. So now everybody's yeah kind of just I'm gonna upload my film on Netflix. <laughs> yeah. Along <laughs> with
2: everyone else,
1: right?
2: <laughs> it's unfortunate. So after all this is being said done, how did H B three come about? This is your your project well not your latest, but it, your ongoing project, right?
1: Yeah, God, it's, you know, the you know, the first album came out in, in two thousand and seven. I yeah. don't know. I just I I, I uh well, I mean, a lot of... Excuse me. You there? And, uh, nature broke up, and that was... Hello, hello, hello. Yeah, I'm here. I, okay. cough-
2: I coughed and knocked you out. Sorry. Oh, yeah. You're back.
1: Well, so let's <laughs> see. Nature was the end of the 90s, so right at the turn of the, of the, t- of the 21st century, right at the, right at the apocalypse, you know, all sorts of crazy, horrible stuff started happening to me. My dad died, oh, and
0: okay. then I
1: went through this horrible, horrible, you know, experience of being the executor of his estate. Uh, inheriting my house and sort of uh, squirreling myself away in here, uh, built a home studio, and started kind of mucking about, but also went back to school, got a master's degree, uh, started teaching, uh, hmm. and in the process of all that was making music, but not really actively. So after I had gone through all of that, uh, right around, I guess it was 2006, um, I, I started you know, seriously recording music again. And put the first album out, Luminosity, in uh, 2007. And mm-hmm. the thing that kept me going was you know, I, I, you know, we, we put out a bunch of press releases and press kits, and I got these amazing reviews or the right bat that I was not expecting. Like the first review I ever got uh, <laughs> was from a a, a magazine called uh, Amplifier, I think. And it just it the praise was off the charts, you know. And and nice. that encouraged me to. to going and sometimes i wonder whether that was such a good
2: thing <laughs> <laughs> i think it's a good thing um i, I since you have it but was there four albums
1: oh there's way more than that well i saw yeah
2: well i was i was on itunes that's you know i, I actually looked to buy these things and um which i did I, and um yeah yeah, I, yeah. Uh, nobody believes me but you know like i said right here in my hands is your actual cd that i miss having so yeah um so how many actually how many do you have then
1: i don't know i think you know i was making up for lost time it depends on how you count. probably like 10 or 11 since 2007. wow okay so the nature album comes out in the mid 90s and then there's a big pause and it's you know i feel like i should have been making music all that
2: time And
1: so i'm kind of working at double speed at this point and that has also prevented me from you know pushing that stuff publicity wise as strongly as as i should be because you know i finished something and I start thinking about the next thing and I start working on that instead. And, uh, you know, I, I'll send it out and play it for people. But that whole publicity side of thing, side of it, it's, it's just not that interesting to me. Oh, and the other thing I wanted to mention mm-hmm. so Luminosity comes out and I get all encouraged by these, you know, fantastic reviews. It's like, okay, so then I start working on the next album, The Veld, and I really throw myself into that. Um, and uh, that was 2007 and 2008. And that, you know, is right when the economy explodes, you know, fireball, right? So I had uh, made huge sacrifices to record that album and everything I went through uh, during that period. And it was like heavy, more heavy life experiences. And I think you can hear it in that album. But, uh, you know, it was... was, (laughs) I I associate the making of that album now with sort of the the devastation of American society Mm -hmm. and more curious events going on in my own life. And coming out on the other side of that, uh, you're kind of in this wasteland now where suddenly like nobody can, nobody has any money. Nobody can buy anything. Nobody can afford to do anything. And there were some publicists that really wanted to handle that album, uh, the Veld*, but it still would have been money, you know? And, uh, that one's like, well, well God, like nobody has any. So it's just going to kind of sit there despite that, uh, it gets played, right? Right. People listen to it,
2: but I'm, I'm making those micro payments, you know, it's like (laughs) 0.00000. Oh man, that's frustrating. I, and the thing of it, I wonder if you agree with me, I have a theory about this, that, um, I don't think people really come into themselves as writers and musicians, of course until I think you hit the age 40 and had to have some tragedy in your life maybe once or twice before the age of forty i just I don't know I just I was an okay writer now I feel yeah. like I'm coming of age finally because life experience and people you meet do uh, you feel that like that I'm I mean obviously yeah,
1: it, with- it would be nice if that were true you know and yeah it probably is true I mean definitely when I do my solo piccolo bass performances, I feel like I would not be playing that music the way that I do had I not gone through mm-hmm. the experiences of the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, uh, absolutely. But then again, I mean, you, you you look at the great writers through history and it's it's terrifying. A lot of these fuckers were dead by 40.
2: Isn't that crazy? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah you wonder Oh, man. man. You wonder what they'd be doing now. Yeah. Oh, well, what they would have been doing if they got past 40. Um uh, what, what would be a good HB3 album for the novice to start with if we were to tell somebody to go out and buy one and they can yeah, only get one?
1: Probably, you know... They're, they're sort of different. Uh, I, I take different approaches from album to album, but, but mm-hmm. I guess uh, there's sort of a pattern that, that's developed now that I've done so many of them. But there's some that are, you know, the heavy electronica mm-hmm. uh, uh, albums, like kind of like the Nature album, uh, like the Veld is an electronic album. With guitar solos and vocals, yes. Uh, and the Veld is good, so I would say the Veld, and then uh, a solo piccolo bass album is called HB3 Plays the Piccolo Bass.
2: I, I love that. I love that.
1: Yeah, that's the stuff that I mostly go out and play now, just because it's it's just me, so I don't have to worry about you know other musicians. I can just show up with a guitar and an amp and and do the set. And uh, people like that album, too. That's another one that was, you know, it, it got a really good response. And then Ragnarok, I think, came out really well, the most recent one, too. So I guess that would be the trio. And that is more of a, you know, guitar-driven uh, instrumental album, no vocals, right? So The Veld, HB3 plays the pickle bass, and Ragnarok, I
2: think, are, are a good uh, trilogy to, to look at. Well, on that note, let's go to, let's play uh, Positive Venus, correct? Yep. Yeah, I love that one. Uh, that's off of HB3. Plays the piccolo bass. It's beautiful. This is a beautiful song. That's all I'm going to say. Let's let the people decide, and we'll get back with uh, Hugh Bernard of Nature, and of course HB3. Thanks for listening, folks. There's more coming. was Positive Venus. Yes, off HB3 Plays, the piccolo bass. And if you're not feeling mellow right now, then you're just not getting it. And you said you wrote this in how long?
1: Well, I did the whole album in a week. Nice. Uh, after I had spent two years working on the Vell, so that was the point. See, I had just gone through this tumultuous production experience with uh, 10,000 instruments, 10,000 tracks, uh, juggling all of this stuff oh, into a coherent presentation. So... I really wanted to do an album with just one instrument. <laughs> so after spending two years on that, then sat down in a fit of inspiration, uh, uh, that was late June uh, 2009. It's unbelievable. And okay. and just batted it out, and I don't know where it came from. Some of it improvised, some of it I had you know sort of dealt before. Positive Venus, I had sort of developed that before, so I knew what I was doing. But other tracks, like uh, the first track, The Umbrellas, that was completely improvised. And then I put it together and uh, constructed it and you know it was just one of those things I felt like I, I, I finished it quickly because there was something pushing me through it and uh, it's a it's a consistent vibe or, 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 or tone or, or whatever you want to call it it, mm-hmm. it it communicates something that that you know captures that moment in time that that is fleeting but if you if you're there for it uh, you know it's nice i wish that i you know there, as a musician there are many moments you wish oh god if only i had recorded that you know mm-hmm. like if only i had a tape player going uh and that was one of those times where fortunately uh you know the the, the gears were churning and, and the stuff got put down
2: yeah and so you do you answer my question you play all the parts
1: yeah i do okay uh uh, for better or worse how, well yeah that's all the stuff that you that sounds like guitar soloing mm-hmm. with the distorted guitar that's actually pick a little bass oh wow okay so it's really you know I'm, oh. I I'm, I think I play a six-string guitar on like on the first track on the Veld album but other than that everything that sounds like electric guitar is actually a four-string bass
2: that's sweet yeah it's very unique sound very unique sound how did, yeah. how did you get your musical start where did all this come from
1: uh, you know uh i grew up with a with a, you know, my dad was a a, 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 a a history professor, but he minored in art history, so he knew about music, and he was a musician himself. And I grew up just being, you know, listening to all the great stuff. He was a classical music aficionado, so listening to classical music as a kid. Uh, you know I was I played trumpet I'm another you know bass player who also plays the trumpet it seems like there's a lot of those out there for whatever reason (laughs) so uh, 12 13 uh, 14 years old playing trumpet in uh, you know uh, junior high and high school Uh, and then you know again friends with Brian uh, uh, 9th 10th grade we decided we were going to play in a rock band so first we had to play instruments (laughs) so we had enough people but we needed to divide up who was going to play what and I was assigned the bass, so that's, that's
2: <laughs> assigned. I yeah, like that's that, that's even better. <laughs>
1: the, the first the first band was called Akak, which was the that's what you call like anti-aircraft artillery fire in World War One. Oh wow! Okay. And we were playing like uh, you know Clash and uh, Who songs and uh, you know like like late you know like post-punk stuff. Oh, like Ramon songs, uh, stuff like that.
2: So that well. Now, I guess uh, I was going to ask you who your biggest supporter was. I guess your dad was your biggest uh, inspiration.
1: Well, you know, he was he was good because he knew all the best stuff. So I really grew up in this amazing environment where mm-hmm. I was listening to the best music, looking at the greatest art, uh, watching great films, and, and talking about it because he was teaching all of this stuff. So, yeah, that was, that was strongly influential Strong. for sure. And then getting into high school, you know, yeah, I, was, I got involved in this group of friends. It was, it was Brian Taylor and then some other friends, and we were really close. I mean, we had this click all through high school. And, you know, it was the same thing. We were, like, you know, listening to music and talking about art and watching films. And, yeah, you know, great to be in, in that sort of environment with some other smart freaks.
2: <laughs> I love that smart freaks absolutely they'll take you far they will or bring you down depends which way you go um, well, and, it all goes together right? <laughs> yeah oh yeah I do understand um, you, know, you know as a matter of fact I want to talk to you about specific songs here that stuck out for me off of Ragnarok actually I like Nightwind um, just because it, it is that yeah, like mm-hmm. you, do you do you have these visuals in your head? Are you actually in these places when you write it? I mean, cause... oh yeah,
1: I mean that that whole album is, is so cinematic, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It, it? It's very visual, and I you know that you can probably trace that back to the Nature album because we were definitely thinking cinematically. Oh and yeah. There's all sorts of cinema influences with all the stuff we were sampling, and and for sure that that that's continued. I, I, I think visually, I would love to have more sort of uh, visual presentations of this stuff, you know, um, but. Uh, I was sort of, uh, trying to do, yeah, uh, who was it? Well, I mean, the electronic wind thing is the mm-hmm. sort of thing you would get in like 70s electronic music. Oh yeah. Uh, and Giorgio Moroder.
2: Yes. And, yes. Uh, <laughs> Excellent. Right? I Giorgio love Giorgio
1: Moroder, and then, uh, the, the bass style was sort of emulating a Chris Squire from yes, with that sort of dig in with the pick, slightly distorted sound, uh, kind of sounds like a Rickenbacker on, you know, like a roundabout or something like that. Uh,
2: Yeah, Yeah. and
1: then kind of taking the listener through the story of Ragnarok in auditory form. Those last four tracks are kind of following the stages of the uh, Norse Apocalypse.
2: I was looking at that. It ends really strong, too. Uh, Remnant. It's yeah. it's kind of an angry guitar, which you don't expect after getting like the the airiness, uh, the, yeah. the atmosphere you get with level seven or night wind. And then all right. of a sudden, Remnant comes in. It's like, oh, he's pissed. Somebody's pissed, and they're playing the guitar right now. And that's it, right. And, and again, great.
1: that's piccolo bass. That is a four string Fender jazz converted into a piccolo bass, played through you know distortion, played like a guitar. But uh, that's one of the things that I really enjoy is going out on stage and and taking that bass guitar out and then playing that sort of thing and it it's highly uh you know there's some people they don't like a bass player who plays like a guitar player but there's just no way out at this point <laughs> no, it's, like, and it's, it's so out there you know and it, it doesn't sound that bad so i have an excuse hey you're teaching uh,
2: again right now you're teaching my listeners stuff we're learning stuff guys we're learning so- stuff
1: the way that album, I, I, I'm, I'm remembering it now. It's like the first half of it, I play piccolo bass, and then I switch to regular bass guitar. So Nightwind, that's a regular bass guitar. That's okay. an Olympic bass played with a pick. And then the next couple of songs, too, regular bass, mm-hmm. and then switch back to the distorted piccolo bass on The Remnant. And that is uh, you know, the, the the glorious aftermath, the rebirth of, uh, of life after <laughs> the devastation. Of the end times and you know it's all sort of like this corny cliched stuff but I thought it would be fun to try to do it sort of seriously without being you know without falling for you know the, the, the typical like metal tropes or whatever right do it in a way where yeah it, you're, you're sort of winking at the audience and it's kind of fun it's kind of silly and dorky but at the same time you're you're kind of taking it seriously and doing a serious compositions that express the ideas uh, of the story being told so yeah, it came out. I think
2: no, it's incredibly admirable. And you look at people like Wes Borland, Les Claypool, they all do that. It's the same. You know, they get this crazy imagery, but there's this talent behind it that you can't argue. Right, right. You can't argue with them. You know.
1: I mean, when you're doing camp and you're trying to be funny, it, it never works. I think when people like sort of campy material, the people who mm-hmm. are producing that sort of thing, they're, they're taking themselves seriously, right? They're, they're they're trying to do something good, but it just has this. It has this strange combination where it's it's kind of funny, it's kind of winsome. Mm-hmm. Uh, but
2: it. it it's oh, lost you. Well, serious, too. You're, back. you're so back. That's
1: what I was trying to do with the whole album.
2: Okay, yeah, you, we just lost you for a brief... I, I think the night wind took you for a second there. All I'm right, sorry. listen, uh, we're, we're going to take a quick and last break before we come back, and I think I really need... You know what? I got to hear Slap. I don't know about you. Are you good with that? Go for it, man. Let's go with slap, and then we're gonna we'll come back, and we're gonna finish things off with you, Bernard. Even though I could probably talk to you all day, uh, it's just one of those things. You know, you can't go too long with these podcasts because people have a very, very uh, well. They, let's put it this way: they'd rather click, see, and move on. You know what I mean? Yeah, I hear you. I hear and that's you. what we were talking about earlier. But hey, we'll be right back. <laughs> That was Slap. And I gotta say, that is funky. And that's Piccolo Bass, isn't it?
1: That is Piccolo Bass.
2: And that is from the 2009 HB3 Plays the Piccolo Bass, which is your second favorite of your albums? Is that what? Yeah, it's it's a good one. I get a good response. (laughs) I have to agree. Fell in Love from the Onset. Uh, That and Umbrellas. And Umbrellas is on the, um, whoa, which one? Oh, that's on the same album. Same album? Yes, 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 yes. That that one, I wanted to say, uh, Umbrellas, like, I feel like, the, on the album cover like you're <laughs> you're sitting on the beach at night just staring yeah. at the ocean that's what umbrellas brings out in me i don't know if that's what you're meant to do yeah it's moody very moody very moody, very good stuff all right now big question are you a comic book fan <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know that's another thing i guess yeah i mean formerly i you know i haven't bought or looked at comics in a while it seems like they kind of they took a turn for the worst like everything else but yeah i mean i was definitely into you know 80s and 90s comics, absolutely. We were we were collector geeks, <laughs> you know along with everything else. Yeah, you
2: know why I bring that up, right? <laughs> no. Oh come on. 2007. Rom Space Knight. Oh that. Yeah. Oh that. That's, That's a song. I forgotten. That's yeah. off of uh, Luminosity. Yeah. Yeah. I saw that, and I, I it, it touches a chord with me because Rom really wasn't all that popular, but he was he was going on for what 70 issues, maybe more. He went. Yeah, he went on forever. For it was a long long run, but then they killed him off. He died. Yeah. Oh, Did they like resurrect him though? I think I, you're probably right, but they lost me when they killed him because my grandma bought me an issue with that. I was like, oh my God, I was like you know just I, I was heartbroken like and so I stopped collecting.
0: Him. <laughs> yeah. but
2: well, um,
1: Ram is sort of a sad character, yeah. you know he's he's off the beaten track. He's not one of the main heroes, and I guess that was part of the appeal. he's a, He's a bit of a loser, but you know, an appealing one.
2: You're probably from the same, uh, so you said the 80s, right? Uh, mid 80s yeah. to late 80s. Yeah, I was collecting big time then. Spawn was new, but I was uh-huh. going back to my, I was Swamp Thing. I was DC. I like Swamp Thing. Yeah, so, I read too. We talk about well, comics a lot on here.
1: So that was when all the, like, first wave of the great Alan Moore stuff was coming out. There
2: you go. Yes. Right. Exactly, exactly. But, um, yeah, I, now, I don't know where you are with horror, but I do have to plug myself right now. Um, there is a book coming out. Uh, we were talking a little bit off uh, uh, when we were off the uh, mics here about George Romero. Well, I work with uh, George, John Russo, writer of the original Night of the Living Dead, who's putting a book together with Burning Bowl Publishing. Um comes out. It's actually available for pre-order now, but it comes out in December p- on paperback um, called Rise of the Dead, 17 Authors. Writing about Night of the Living Dead, the timeline of Night of the Living Dead with their own short stories. So you're looking at 67 to 69 period and it has to fall in place with Night of the Living Dead. And, uh, John Russo is putting it together. You can go to www.burningbowlpublishing.com and pre-order it right now. I think it comes off Amazon. But yeah, I just, I have to throw that out there. So, um, yeah. uh, What do you think about that? (laughs) Think about, uh, John Russo, Night of the Living Dead, the original guy putting this together.
1: yeah, that I, I love those films. Uh again, going back to high school, actually Brian Taylor and I uh were watching Dawn of the Dead over and over and over again.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, you know, like probably many teenagers. Uh we were obsessed with that film, memorized the script, uh <laughs> watched it dozens of times. So yeah, I mean that those early films and you know, I remember when Day of the Dead came out, we we went to see Day of the Dead on opening day. Uh yeah. You know, yeah, we were way into
2: it. You actually can see a lot of those folks if you come to Pittsburgh, because they, they all do the cons here, and a lot of, even just the zombies, uh, the guy that played, I think his name is Rickles, was that the, in Day of the Dead, he was the leader, lead. Oh like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah he, 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 he's a cool dude, he does a lot of the shows, and John Russo does a lot of the shows, of course, too. Um, it's a good time. Pittsburgh, yeah, I mean, it's a place for zombies, what can I say. A lot yeah. of horror, a lot of horror out here, a lot of dark gothic music, too, but we do have a lot of that, we play a lot of that here. Um, I remember
1: we liked the film Martin too. I haven't seen yeah. that in a while, but I really enjoyed that film.
2: That's a good one. That's a good one. I like that one a lot. Um, you know, all
1: of Romero's 70s out there. He made it. You know, there was a lot of great stuff that he made. The Crazies.
2: Yeah. And then they remade that's that. With,
1: that's with the guy from he has a little cameo in Dawn of the Dead, right? Yeah. He's the guy wearing the eye patch screaming about dummies.
2: Yes. Yes. Dummies. <laughs> <laughs> That guy. That <laughs> guy. <Okay. laughs> oh, man. I, I, I got to ask you this now because we were talking about shows earlier. Now, uh, did you have any – did you open for anybody? Or are you guys pretty much – you did the club no. scene yourself. Oh,
1: my God. We were trying and trying. They were trying to – we were trying to get, like, opening slots for Tool. We were label mates with Tool, and that oh, wasn't wow. happening.
2: Oh, man. It was so hard
1: to get gigs. It was just – oh, our tours were a whole other story unto themselves. We, You know, we we toured, and – in uh, 94 and 95, and no, some some of them were good, but many were were catastrophic, and we never really got Mm. a good opening slot on a tour. You know, I took amazing photographs from those tours, and someday I'm going to scan them all and put them online. There needs to be some sort of, like, retrospective uh, nature website, because they're completely hilarious, but what they are is sort of, like, nature you know lost in america in like you know every fucked up neighborhood in the country uh, you know hanging out at like trailer parks and truck stops
2: oh uh, you should man compile it yeah do it do a picture book sean you saw from white zombie did that and it's a great book she kept all the nostalgia even like posters they would put up on 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 poles. you know that and she yeah. had a story uh, you know as a, a paragraph about each one you should do that
1: yeah it's hilarious stuff
2: you got you should definitely do that well it leads me to like this question here uh what's like uh what was a bad moment do you have any bad fan moments or bad moments on stage
1: you know our fans are really cool they're all like insane but sort of charmingly insane thank you so uh, i don't I don't remember anything you know the, the the filming of the cometh video had some weird shit going on uh they were <laughs> hanging us upside down in these gravity boots and uh I didn't like being hung upside down and then uh you know, we, we did multiple takes, and I remember my arms completely freaking out because I was hitting the bass so hard. You can't really see it in the video, but when we would play, I mean, I was basically like, I mean, I would hit the bass really hard. And, and we had these songs where I'm just like hitting like continuous eighth notes, uh, you know, fast. Uh, <laughs> I and, love, uh, I you know, I remember I had to like walk off the stage because my arms were, you know, like spasming. I went into the, the bathroom and like sat on the toilet, and this girl came in to try and help me. Just as she walked in, my arms started like convulsing, like my like my biceps had become like broken rubber bands or something, and she ran out of the room screaming. <laughs> <laughs> Did
2: she know what was going on. Oh man, it was really
1: weird. Yeah, it was like I had lost control of of you know my. Uh, central nervous system or something (laughs) that's a visual Um, as far as the gigs, no i mean it it was all good it was just it was a struggle to get good gigs and it was a struggle to get i remember we had problems with our booking agent and we had problems with management and it was was all the bureaucracy see that's the thing that was so terrible about it because we came into the music business really strong Mm -hmm. and then it was everybody who was working for us or with us that wasn't working out you oh. know and that that's what brought it all down right Jeez. so uh we came to it very strong very idealistically very passionately and it, it was wiped out in two years
2: unbelievable in and out like that yeah. well you got stuff going on now um any current do you have any current gigs where you're going out and playing like coming up that you could plug right now Yeah, i'm
1: you know i'm playing at the, the pasadena old town pub and uh, i think that's the 15th on a, on a monday I, I do gigs uh at a, at a local amphitheater called The Folly Bowl, but I don't think I have anything uh, okay. soon. Uh, recording-wise, I just finished an EP with a, with a rapper out of Austin. He's named Cabrini Green. That album's called Sundogs, and uh, that's a 30-minute, six-song LP that will hopefully be out in the next couple of minutes. I actually just finished it yesterday. Nice. And probably going to go over to Europe to play at least in France uh, with this uh, French singer that I did another EP <laughs> earlier this year uh, so I'll probably be in Paris sometime, uh, probably not until the latter part of next year, so we'll have to like update
2: now this, our calendars. this, uh, French singer has a, a special, uh, his name's Le I believe. Yeah. The yeah. rabbit. He, he's, dressed, he's dressed in a rabbit suit. Yes, he is. What's the deal with that? Just a uh, just uh, thing? You know, I
1: haven't asked.
2: <laughs> that's great if you never ask and you just do it that's probably there's even a lot of questions like does he
1: just have one suit you know I don't know does he Does he clean it what, like who does he entrust to, to care for this item it's a, it's a nice suit you know it's a rabbit costume within like a three piece you know like double breasted you know he's got a vest and then like a magician's cape and uh, he has, like, a like a cane, and he twirls the cane while he's singing these songs. Wow. And I've had friends ask, you know, is this guy a furry, or, you know, like, what's the right. deal with this? And it's the same thing. I haven't asked, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I yeah. don't want to know. I don't really get that feeling. Yeah. Super nice guy. I mean, he's incredibly sweet, very soft-spoken, uh, multi-talented artist. He's a comic book artist. He's a writer. He's okay. a filmmaker. I mean, all these, all these European guys, they, they, they do all this stuff. You know, they've got their little music projects. They've got their little labels. And... I don't know. It seems like they function a little bit better than we do. There's, there's more of a support system, I think, in place out there.
2: Yeah, they embrace the weird a little bit more. I, I I have seen that. Uh, Definitely, I I agree. And I work a lot of Comic Con, so I see a lot of that as well. And you you do wonder if they wash these suits. Let me tell you, a lot of those kids don't do it. (laughs) Miserable experience. (laughs) <laughs> oh man oh, I, I don't even want to talk about an anime fest that i work i can't even say the name of it here but it was oh, it was God. a yeah, stinky fest man Ooh, yeah <laughs> mom and dad aren't washing the clothes for them i'm telling you you but, know i never smelled anything and i was driving
1: this guy around so i i think he was taking care of himself a little bit better yeah. he's a, a
2: hygienic rabbit and it's called special secret is this the that album special or? secret yeah <laughs> Okay, and now what kind of music is this? What are you? What can we expect? It's 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 more like
1: guitar-driven electronica with okay. with French with French singing. So it's it, it's rather similar to like the stuff on the Veld. But he's he's you know we got this other singer and he comes across well and you know the, I think his lyrics are good. Uh, actually, one track that we did he didn't have lyrics so I adapted a a, a, a poem by the by the uh, the symbolist uh, the French symbolist Baudelaire. Uh, so you know it's a it's a drum and bass styled track with with uh, French poetry over the top.
2: Okay, that's wild. I'm gonna have to hear this. And now Caprini Caprini Green, that EP oh. you're doing now, that's basically is it rap uh, with a with yeah, that's netto? like
1: ghetto tech uh, rapping. Uh, you know, he's he's from Austin, so you know he's oh, cool. he's he's crazy. Very cool. Uh, uh, yeah, like uh, I, I, I don't know, like like cultural ephemera references and smoking weed and and uh, you know, ghetto beats. And then lots and lots of bass. I played uh, electric bass, just traditional electric bass on that, but tons and tons and tons of uh, bass playing. Actually, there's a bit of a concept I alternate between fretted and fretless bass. Uh, playing in the style, first of Stanley Clark and then Jacko Pastorius, the two greatest electric bass players of all time, very influential. And then I sort of combine the two on the last track, and the last track is actually called Stanley Pastorius. And we invented a character who sort of combined the two bass players into one figure, and uh, I play both the fretted and fretless basses on that track.
2: Man,
0: highly
1: conceptual.
2: It's just like a new. We we closed some books and we just opened some new ones today. It's amazing. (laughs) I mean, really, I don't. I'm not going to say the nature book is closed because I still have some music to hear. Apparently, Uh, you got some tracks. I can't wait to hear.
1: I got a lot of extra stuff. I'd love to play with those guys sometime, but I just I don't know if they want to. You know, I Mm. think a lot of those. I think at least for Andrew, he's walked away, and Brian, I don't think he really. I mean, he's he's putting his energies somewhere else. So for for nature to play, although I'd love it, uh you know.
2: Well, you never know. Maybe this will spark something. Maybe one of them will come back out of the out of the smoke and say, "I can't blame any of you guys for walking away from something like that." But I mean, you made it. You made something. You made something awesome. It's it's got to be a cool revisit. So I, I'd like to yeah. see that happen.
1: It was good for its time, you know. Um, it, it felt felt really good for for uh, you know. The the first phase of it was was truly an amazing experience.
2: That's cool. That's cool. Well, before we go out, we're going to go out with Ragnarok. That's just a great song. Um, You should tell the folks where to find you. Where can they find you? Oh,
1: well, you know, there's hb3.com, which badly needs updating, but it is there. (laughs) Uh, And then, uh, you know, you can always, uh, you know... Uh, Bandcamp, iTunes... Actually, I'm not on Bandcamp. I'm on, I couldn't
2: find you there. I couldn't find you I'm there. on
1: everything else but Bandcamp.
2: Uh, yeah.
1: But iTunes and Spotify, search on uh, hb 3 and you'll be flooded with uh, material...
2: Cool, cool. Yeah, it's definitely, definitely worth a visit, folks, I gotta tell you. And, uh, while you're at it, look for Rise of the Dead. It's coming out, man. And I, I wrote a pretty sick story that takes place, uh, as part of it takes place in San Francisco, it ends up in Pittsburgh. But also, my, my book, The Fall of Tomorrow, it's out there. This is not a zombie book. This is Demons. If you like scary monsters, try The Fall of Tomorrow. I, I'm, I'm, it's my first outing, uh, with a novel. And, um, I don't know, just give a new guy a break. <laughs> go to Amazon.com, fall of tomorrow's there, or go to FairlyDarkProductions.com. That is my website. And always check out Kettle Whistle Radio. Thanks for listening. And, Hugh Bonart, thank you so much for coming on. Nature and HB3 and, I mean, guys in rabbit suits, we got a lot of work to do here. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. Thank you, man. I appreciate hey, it. Hey, I hope you had a good time. I did. Thank you. All right, we'll talk again, man. And uh, for now, Ragnarok.
0: Give some Luchello, okay? okay. Well, that settles that.
1: Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with ElectroCast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Ravelson. We're the founders of ElectroCast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join ElectroCast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to electrocast.com and join our community today. Electrocast.
0: Transform your influence. Electrocast. Are you passionate about saving the planet for future generations? Do you want to learn how to do it? If yes, then you need to tune in to the Back podcast. It's a talk show covering the changing world around us, from renewable energy, sustainable agriculture, circular economy, to ESG and social innovation. Don't miss this opportunity to discover how you can join the movement and make a difference. Subscribe to the Nature Natureback podcast today on your favorite platform and get ready to be amazed. Electric acid.